Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known fascinating facts about your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We're two guys with too much free time on our hands. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And our inaugural episode features everything you didn't know about the cinematic classic Hook, which turned 30 years old last December. But being our first episode, we wanted to tell you a little bit about ourselves and why we have all of this useless knowledge. Yeah, you know, we're 33-year-old men who can talk at length about Hook for half an hour, so we should probably explain ourselves. Uh, We're veterans of the, what would you say, post-BuzzFeed journalism world? The content minds. Veterans of the content wars. Basically, we're we're, we're two listicle writers let off the leash. Uh, Between the two of us, we have accrued literally thousands of words millions of page views, decades of experience, and hundreds of dollars. About 80 bucks, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Over the last decade, we've worked at places like VH1, Entertainment Weekly, Page Six, Rolling Stone, and People Magazine, where we met and became friends. Jordan also plays in my band. That's right. I play in uh, Heigl's band, World's Greatest Detective. One of the things I've always loved about your writing is your insane granular attention to detail, which you have already <laughs> brought to bear on, on Hook. And um, Phil Collins' Neuroses. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know, I mean, those kinds of anniversary pieces were always my favorite to write because it was just, they were fun. You know, you got paid to learn and share that with others. I mean, I always loved that. What did you think of doing all those, like, listicle pieces? I think the joy that I took in them is that with so much um, bile on the internet and in my heart, (laughs) um, it's just great to get people excited about stuff. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, did you have any sort of, like, early love of trivia? Well, we had about 17 different Uncle John's bathroom readers in our in our house, but that was like my dad's favorite thing. The original uh, listicle. Yeah, exactly. And Hard copy. I was in my middle school, uh, what, the, what we called Quiz Bowl, which was Ooh, a sort of that? competitive uh, inter-district trivia team, essentially. And I, like you, you know, I, I came of age during the uh, U.S. run of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which I know... You have quite the personal history with. Yeah, that's right. I was, I was, uh, I was on it. Uh, unfortunately, not during the the Regis years. It was during the uh, boo. The, yeah, I know the the daytime Cedric the Entertainer. Uh, and uh, you know, spoiler, I, I did not win. I am I am not a millionaire. A thousandaire? Uh, no. A hundredaire? No. They, they changed the rules by that time, <laughs> and it was a lot harder to win. Let me, let me, <laughs> just, that's going to be my my defense. Yeah. So I have I I got to know. What, what 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 was it? What happened? The the que- oh, I still have night terrors about the question. All right, well, let, let me put it to you. Uh, who was the only person to have guest hosted the Tonight Show with Jay Leno? Was it A. Brian Williams? Was it B. Katie Couric? Was it C. Betty White? Or was it D. Jerry Seinfeld? Without getting into the whole digressive like millionaire structure, I would personally say Seinfeld because they're both rich white men with extensive classic car collections. That's what I said. I was wrong. Apparently, it it was Katie Couric. 
uh, they did a Tonight Show, Today Show flip flop as oh. a promo thing. Yeah, and and I got it wrong. What won't Jay Leno take from you next? <laughs> but I it did not uh, dampen my love of trivia, which began as a kid when I started studying Trivial Pursuit cards in hopes that during family game night I would convince my family that I was a genius and they wouldn't make me go to school. So I was going to memorize the answers on on uh, Trivial Pursuit cards and study them in advance, and um, and that didn't work. I was going to say, learning so much about your early childhood psychology here, Jordan. So we should probably move off this now. <laughs> yeah, let's and, uh, get into the childhood psychology of Hook. Yes, because we got a lot to talk about. There's Michael Jackson's would-be role in the film and Dustin Hoffman's disgusting daily breakfast. There's the saga of the onset pirate wranglers and Julia Roberts' hellish production experience. We'll also have all the ways the kid who played Rufio was a real-life badass, and also all the ways that Robin Williams was, predictably, the best. We'll discuss a cavalcade of hidden cameos you probably never noticed, and divulge the true meaning of Bangarang. So let's do it. Here's everything you didn't know about Steven Spielberg's Hook. Well, speaking of childhood psychology, as you mentioned, Hook had a very personal meaning to Steven Spielberg, the director of the film. He directed a version of uh, Peter Pan in grade school. He had a really strong connection with the story because I guess he and his dad had a really complicated, troubled relationship. And there were a lot of films, if you look at it, it's kind of a through line in a lot of his work, exploring dysfunctional father-son relationships. You see that in E.T. and Ninian Jones and The Last Crusade with Indy and Sean Connery. He also famously said that um, after he had kids, he would not have made the ending to Close Encounters the same. I didn't know that. Yeah, he said, um, you know, since having kids, I would never have uh, a father abandon his children. Yeah, he would have completely changed the ending of that movie. Wow. Making it much worse, in my opinion. <laughs> but, you know... I don't have kids. So the uh, the genesis of the film started when Spielberg's mother would redo him Peter Pan and Wendy as a as a as a bedtime story. And yeah, by 11 years old, he was directing the story as a school production. And uh, he would say, you know, I've always felt like Peter Pan. It's very hard for me to grow up. I feel like I'm a victim of Peter Pan syndrome. So this was always an ambition for him to direct a Peter Pan movie. And he actually started developing this movie in the early 80s, 10 years before Hook ultimately went into production. And it was a little more faithful to the animated version. It was kind of a straight Peter Pan story. And then he became a father. And as you mentioned, he decided that, you know, I'd rather actually be a dad to these kids rather than just spend time with, with other people's kids on a, on a set. So he took some time away. And actually, in the meantime, he almost directed Big which would have been kind of nuts, which I guess if you think about it, kind of has a lot of same themes of like... Yeah, fertile ground for Spielberg's therapist. Spielberg has daddy issues. <laughs> the defining aspect of his career. So yeah, this movie meant a lot to Spielberg. You know, at one point in the like protracted development of this, uh, it was conceived as a full-fledged musical with Spielberg's constant running buddy, John Williams, who actually composed eight songs for this embryonic version of the film. Um, you know, only two of them actually made it in there, We Don't Want to Grow Up, which is regrettably not a rewrite of the Tom Waits song off Bone Machine, <laughs> and When You're Alone, which also plays into Spielberg's daddy issues, presumably. Uh, the libretto for the score, if you will, came from uh, Leslie Bricuse, who uh, did the lyrics for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which are also like a deep well of childhood sadness, a deep, rich vein to mine there. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely be doing an episode on that at some point. <laughs> also, Dr. Doolittle, Goldfinger, and You Only Live Twice. Um, My favorite Bond theme. Oh, Goldfinger's incredible. You can just sing any, like, three-syllable word to Goldfinger, and it sounds awesome. Can you give us a demo now? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to cost you extra. Uh, but interestingly enough, no one has ever heard the rest of these songs. They have been sealed in a vault, probably with the rest of Prince's unreleased stuff. And um, I don't know, whatever John Williams has rolling around in the can. What unreleased John Williams scores do you think there are? I think I think he has Norbit. I think Norbit <laughs> is, is, is one that he worked on. Grown Ups too. Yeah. <laughs> So sort of to, on this musical train, back in the early days when it was conceived as a musical, Michael Jackson was initially in talks for the lead role of Peter Pan because... <laughs> a little on the nose. Uh, yeah, of course he was. And uh, they were also thinking of getting David Bowie to play Hook. Which kind of works for me because like... This right was, off the Labyrinth I era. was going to say, it was right off Labyrinth. And the thing that I think makes David Bowie so great in Labyrinth is that he's like sinister 
in and, yeah. and like spooky. There's an edge there that I don't think you get with. Well, we'll get into Dustin Hoffman later. <laughs> uh, they were also considering for Hook Donald Sutherland and Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd would have been incredible. Um, not to bring this back to my childhood, but uh, one of the most scarring things I've ever seen was Judge Doom in in Who oh, Framed when he, Roger when he Rabbit. Melts, yeah. yeah, I used to have well, spoiler. Like, we should probably say at the top of every episode. <laughs> spoiler for, for Who Framed yeah. Roger Rabbit. Um, yeah, I had nightmares for years about that. He is so scary in that movie, and probably would have taken this too far into sinister. Okay. <laughs> well, he was in Dennis the Menace too. Remember yes. the live? Oh my god, he's also terrifying in that. Yeah, he like cuts an apple with like a switchblade or something yep. in front of this kid's face. I which... want to do I can I do a Christopher Lloyd in Oh yeah, as, please as do. Book? Peter. Peter Pan. <laughs> <laughs> Just this is a time traveling, yeah, insane inventor pirate. When this alligator eats me alive, you're gonna say some serious. <laughs> I'm I'm so glad this this entire <laughs> episode is really a vehicle for you to do that impression. <laughs> Years in the making. Um, for Smee, we had some really great contenders. We had Danny DeVito and Joe Pesci. I mean, of course, both of those it would have would been, have been perfect. Yeah, but you're right. You know what? The the guy who did get it, Bob Hoskins. Was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, man. He's Eddie Valiant, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But getting back to the the original dream casting of Michael Jackson as uh, as Peter Pan, uh, he turned it down when Spielberg revisited the film later in the late 80s as sort of a, a Peter Pan having grown up. And, and Michael Jackson kind of famously didn't want to grow up. So he thought that the, the project wasn't right for him. He was really bummed that Spielberg changed it into this other idea. And he was apparently bummed enough, and I, I want to get my my citations right for this. He was apparently bummed enough about this that he placed a voodoo curse on Steven Spielberg. Uh, this is from a 2003 Vanity Fair article and sort of hatchet job by Maureen Orth. And she reported that Michael Jackson sought out a, a to use her words, a witch doctor to curse his enemies and bless himself. Because this was in uh, in summer of 2000 uh, when he was starting to, to, the bills were starting to pile up. And he was sort of, he was having a, a, a rough time at this time. Uh, so he apparently had an enemies list of 25 people. I think David Geffen was on it as well. And uh, yeah, and Spielberg made it on too and apparently uh i guess the jury's still out on whether or not the voodoo curse actually worked although he did make crystal skull right <laughs> bing <laughs> um actually i want to get the good bad and the ugly bullet ricochet noise in there for every punchline <laughs> um i actually would like to crunch the numbers on this uh voodoo thing so there were 25 people on the list and it cost him a hundred and fifty thousand dollar wire transfer to a bank in Mali, and supposedly forty two cows were ritually sacrificed for this. Now, my question is: Do you also have to buy the cows, or is that in figure? Is that included in the hundred and fifty k? I I don't know. I haven't checked the market rate for cows <laughs> right. and, and other bovine creatures lately. <laughs> but um, back in the two thousands, it would have been. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this was when he was apparently. I think it said $240 million in debt at this time. Um, and before we move on to other contenders for uh, Peter Banning, as he was known, uh, Peter Pan was known as he grew up, was Tom Hanks, eh, kind of yeah. on the note, yeah. And Kevin Klein. I don't love either of those, to be, yeah, to be perfectly no. honest. I, you know, Robin Williams, and we'll get into this later, Robin Williams has a deep well of sadness that I think anchors that this, and melancholy. Yeah, that like anchors this whole conceit of Peter Pan growing up and forgetting who he is. And I, Kevin Klein could probably pull that off, but Tom Hanks is just too twinkly and pleasant. He was good and big. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I have nothing against big. <laughs> I have no quarrel with Tom Hanks. Uh, okay, so while we're on Peter Banning, segue. Peter Pan author J.M. Barry originally had a story that was developed along the lines of Hook where Peter Pan grew up. Um, and <laughs> God love him, the man could not write a decent title. Apparently he was titling it The Man Who Couldn't Grow Up and Second Contender, The Old Age of Peter Pan. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, the, the title, it's like snakes on a plane. Like, yeah. you know what you're getting. It's yeah. like, okay, I appreciate that. It's this like, was like, when was, when were these written? Like, before the age of, of subtlety in, in writing? So you just had to spell it out to get people uh, involved? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. The Hound of the Baskervilles, the man who couldn't grow up. 
Okay, so Hook screenwriter James V. Hart, who after this would go on to corner the market in highbrow, big-budget literary adaptations of the 1990s. He also wrote the script for uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is Coppola's famous big-budget Dracula movie, which we should do an episode on later. Absolutely. Uh, And then he went on to do Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in 1994, write the script for that, not as well-received or as interesting. And then he kind of went back to the children's movie out of classic literature well by penning the script for Muppet Treasure Island, um, which is another beloved 90s uh, property. And then scaled to new heights in the 2000s with Lara Croft colon Tomb Raider M-The Cradle of Life. So a mighty rise and fall for Jim V. Hart. Anyway, Jim V. Hart had been trying to find, you have to say the whole thing every time. It's like a Tribe Called Quest. Uh, Jim V. Hart had been trying to find a new angle to the Peter Pan story for years, and in 1982, his three-year-old son made him a drawing that he described as a crocodile eating Captain Hook, and Hart's telling this story in Steven Spielberg, a biography. Uh, But that crocodile didn't really eat him, his son said. He got away. So I went, wow, Hook is not dead. The crocodile is. We've all been fooled. A few years later, Hart's son brought up the subject of Peter Pan again, asking whether he'd ever grown up. Poignant. I realized that Peter Pan did grow up, Hart said, just like all of us baby boomers who are now in our 40s. I patterned him after several of my friends on Wall Street, where the pirates wear three-piece suits and ride in limos. Thank you, Jim Hart, (laughs) for saying the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet. Moving on. Now, Hook as I guess is, is often the case in Hollywood, there's a lot of nepotism going on in the casting of the film Hook. The, Jim V. Hart's son was, uh, was cast in the movie, which is only fair considering he basically is the one who, who planted the seeds for yeah, did it. Did he get like a story by producer credit I, as well? Does he still know. get we residuals from this? <laughs> well, he was one of the Lost Boys. He was personally cast by, by Spielberg. And I guess every day on the set, Robin Williams would, would bow to this kid. His name was Jake and say, thanks for my job, Jake which is, you know, the first of many Robin Williams is the best stories we'll get to in this episode. And uh, Dustin Hoffman also put, I think, all three of his kids in this movie. His youngest son, Max, played the five-year-old Peter Pan. His daughter, Rebecca Hoffman, played Jane in the play at the beginning of the movie. And his oldest son, Jake, played a little league player at Jack's baseball game. But probably the most interesting instance of what I guess you could call nepotism is that this is, I think, Gwyneth Paltrow's second movie that she ever appeared in. She was 19 years old. She's also Steven Spielberg's goddaughter. Spielberg remembers that he was going with Gwyneth's family to the uh, the premiere of Silence of the Lambs. They all uh, took a limo together. <laughs> Which weird. Which, yeah, I mean, I wanna... <laughs> weird, Spielberg. I get that Hollywood is all like one like 50-person circle and they probably wanted to support Demi. It was a big prestige film but weird film to take your family to yeah so and apparently it kind of upset young Gwyneth because they were driving back and and Spielberg saw her in the back seat kind of like still looking disturbed by the whole movie (laughs) and apparently he would later say I was looking at her in the rearview mirror and she was talking about the film and she had this really frightened look on her face and it suddenly clicked and I said hey you could be young Wendy. You could be the young Maggie Smith. First of all, also weird, Stephen, to like look at the look of uh, terror and unsettling on a on a teen girl's face and say, "I can make money off of that." Uh, and also, how dare you say that? <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow is no Maggie Smith. Continue. <laughs> Um, apparently there and then on the spot he said do you want to make a movie and so that's how uh, Gwyneth landed a a, a role in one of her very first films Uh, I guess she made her debut in the 1991 musical romance film Shout starring John Travolta we all love that one and um, many of the Lost Boys specifically the uh, the kid who played Rufio would later admit to having a massive crush on Gwyneth on the set and Maggie Smith Dame Maggie (laughs) Smith Smith. pardon me you have a lot to say about, oh, uh, about boy, Rufio. Oh, boy, do I, Rufio. Yeah, I think anybody who, like, saw this film in their youth was saw Rufio and was like, that is the coolest person in the entire world. And with good cause. Starting right off with the casting, Leonardo DiCaprio had uh, auditioned for, quote-unquote, an unspecified role. Basically, based on his age at the time, he would have been 15 or 16. It's speculated that he was either testing for... Uh, Rufio or another older lost boy, given that he was too old to play uh, Jack, who is 11 in the film. So 
in theory, there's a multi. If you subscribe to the multiverse theory, there's a world in which Leonardo DiCaprio played Rufio, which kind of rules. Yeah, I like I that. Think, yeah, I, I think I would like to live in that. that universe. But so the role eventually went to actor Dante Basco, who was just 16 years old when he picked up the part. He landed it after one audition. He told News.com that he landed the part so quickly because Steven Spielberg told him that out of all the kids that auditioned for the role, I was the only kid who scared him. But, you know, obviously, the kid's incredible in the movie. I mean, he trained for swords fi- sword fighting in this movie. They did a lot of it uh, the way that you do, like, horror movie kills, where they would basically rehearse doing backwards. So they... they Wait, they rehearse the fight backwards. Yeah, so, like, you... They do this a lot in horror films. They There's a famous one in one of the... Friday the 13th, where a guy gets, like... Uh, machete to the face and basically you film them pulling it out so that you can reverse the film and it looks like it's going in so when he's uh, sword fighting with Robin Williams and he says the line you're dead jolly man he had to speak that in reverse because the whole thing was rehearsed and shot backwards is there no end to this young man's talent I know I know he he learned to fight backwards and then he learned to speak backwards Mm -hmm. and he scared Steven Spielberg I want to know what his like audition piece was was it like a monologue did he do like Something from it's like, hey, Steven, I can fight backwards. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, did he do like monologue from um... Noises Off? <laughs> he did the entirety of the monologue from The Iceman Cometh. <laughs> uh, this is probably not a shock to anyone, but Rufio's look was inspired by the Mad Max movies. <laughs> Another weird bit of uh, of Hollywood is one big incestuous family. Um, Basco says he played basketball with Jaleel White, who played Urkel. Because Hook filmed next door to Family Matters, so I don't know who won. I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna go ahead. And, well, you know what? I don't want to short sell Jaleel White. Jaleel White might have some handles, but I feel confident saying that Dante yeah. Basco probably schooled I would, Jaleel. I would second that. Naturally, Basco kept a sword, kept Peter Pan's golden one. Yeah, yeah, and he uh, kept and framed the concept sketches for his own armor, which is pretty baller. Okay, and while the last entry in our Dante Basco Lost Boys lightning round is that Bangarang, which, as everyone knows, is the Lost Boys rallying cry, is a Jamaican word meaning chaos. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. 
In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Now, moving right along, there were two people who were not cast in Hook that Spielberg kept in his mind and later wound up in the movie Jurassic Park. For Hook, a young boy named Joseph Mazzello auditioned for the role of Jack. He didn't get it, but Spielberg liked him so much that he promised he'd put him in one of his upcoming films, and he made good on his promise. He wound up as the lead boy, whose name escapes me, in Jurassic Park a few years later. And apparently Spielberg also asked Sir Richard Attenborough to play Toodles, and Attenborough declined because uh, he was directing Chaplin at the time. Mistake. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> but uh, but no, but then Spielberg cast him as Dr. John Hammond in Jurassic Park and in The Lost World Jurassic Park in 1993 and 1997, respectively. You mentioned earlier Hollywood, one big, I'll just call it family. I'll leave out the... <laughs> leave out the incestuous yeah, part. Yeah, I'll just say one big family. The set of Hook was like the hottest place in town at this time. I mean, this was, you know, Spielberg directing a big budget Peter Pan movie. This is great. Everybody wanted to come by and stop by and see it. Visitors on the set were so common that the uh, filmmakers had people sign an official guest book. And celebrities who stopped by, Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Whoopi Goldberg, Michelle Pfeiffer, Warren Beatty, Annette Bening, Mel Gibson... Prince, and then actual royalty, Queen Noir of Jordan. But somebody really interesting who uh, who showed up was a young Angelina Jolie. Dustin Hoffman's former co-star in Midnight Cowboy and his good friend John Voight asked if he could bring his children to meet Captain Hook. And one of them is, of course, Angelina Jolie, who was 16 at the time. And um, Hoffman would describe her sort of ungallantly as a <laughs> tall, thin, gawky-looking girl with a mouthful of braces. And apparently after she told him that she wanted to be an actress... Hoffman later said to his wife, I don't think this kid has any idea what a tough road she's got. Filed under Dustin Hoffman being a jag. <laughs> but she she showed him. <laughs> and one of my favorite stories of, of guests visiting the set was um, Judy Garland's daughter, Lorna Luft, visited the set with her young son. And she was walking through the sets and she actually broke down and started to cry. And when, when they asked her why, she said, this was the same soundstage where my mother made The Wizard of Oz. And this is the closest thing that's been done to that. So it's been really, this film is, you know, our generation's Wizard of Oz, but it's all the special effects and just the whimsy. It was really special for her to be there and kind of see in in a small way what her, her late mother had gone through. I think the film is, Hook is also really interesting because it is sort of closing in on the era when you would have something this big budget with yeah. all practical effects, all like right, no CGI. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, this it's, it is kind of a forerunner in terms of what you think Disney is really mining now in with giving every villain and every ancillary character like a gritty backstory. <laughs> Hook is really like a forerunner to that. But nowadays you do all this shit on a green screen, right? Or, yeah. or interior sets are built. Not to short sell Cruella, like the wardrobe and all that design looks amazing. But, you know, we'll get into the budget for this a little bit later. But like this and the, the couple of Dracula movies, it's sort of the last gasp of that, like, really intense practice. Because CGI starts to creep in, starting with Jurassic Park. Not starting with, but you take my meaning. Now, none of the celebrities we mentioned who visited the set actually wound up in the movie, but Hook has a ton of celebrity cameos. Some are obvious and some are insanely hidden, but they're all pretty nuts. So, first up we have Glenn Close who uh plays the pirate who uh, upsets Captain Hook and gets thrown into the box, the, the scorpion, boo box, the boo box with a scorpion. An early forerunner in Glenn Close's history in male drag. You know, she famously did uh, Albert Nobbs in 2011, uh, where she's in drag for that whole movie. She looks terrifyingly, not terrifying, <laughs> she looks uncannily like Levon Helm, I have to say. If there's ever like a late in light, like a Todd Haynes, I'm not there, like reimagining of the life of of exp- just Levon Helm, like not even the rest of the band, just Levon Helm, I went Glenn Close to do the Kate Blanchett drag role. Her look of horror in that film is, in that scene, is really, really scary. Well, like, it's like the deer hunter. They actually put her in a box with a scorpion. <laughs> There's rats in here, Michael. We'll get into the deer hunter later. Uh, fun segue from Hook, getting into the deer hunter. Uh, okay, next on the celebrity. This isn't a lightning round. We're moving at molasses pace. Uh, David Crosby. David Crosby, actual must pirate mustache owner and probably like one of the few people on this with actual sailing experience yeah. mm-hmm. as the pirate who screams, long live the pan on Hook's ship. 
Jimmy Buffett, who wishes he was a pirate and is not. There's debate over whether or not he's actually in this movie. Some people say he might have been cut. Obviously, I think it would please Jimmy Buffett to no end to have played a pirate in this movie. So I hope it didn't happen for him. I heard that he was the pirate who tries to steal Peter's shoes. And then, but my favorite cameo in this whole movie, while we're on the, the topic of music legends, is Phil Collins, the uh, the police detective at the beginning of the movie named Inspector Good, is Phil Collins, and he filmed this cameo in, in two days. And the really interesting part, sort of an Easter egg, is in Myra's bedroom, there's a poster of the Beatles movie A Hard Day's Night. And Phil Collins was actually an extra in this movie in 1964. He was in drama school, and he was one of the the crowd in the uh, in the concert scenes screaming at the Beatles. So they kind of stuck that in there as a little as a little nod to him. But it's funny because he did have a background and training as an actor, and he was worried that in some of the early press for the movie. They featured his name pretty heavily, and it was just a little cameo, and he was really worried that everyone was going to think that he had a bigger role and he didn't perform very well, and they cut it down to just a small cameo. So then he kind of gently requested that his name be uh, faded a little bit from the uh, early press coverage. Which I'm going to... We're not, we're, I'm not going to lie a lot on this podcast, uh, but I'm going to lie right now and say Phil Collins had a much bigger role in this movie, and it was cut <laughs> because he's Phil Collins. Uh, moving on. Carrie Fisher and George Lucas are both in this movie. They appear as the couple who are kissing on the bridge who start to get floated up into the air when Tinkerbell sprinkles fairy dust over them. Fisher actually confirmed that she's in there. She was rumored for a very long time. It was sort of one of those up in the air bits. And she was confirmed, uh, in what was this? 2006 is the 25th anniversary of it was uh, she confirmed that she was in there. And Carrie Fisher actually has more than just a cameo role on this film. As a lot of people found out when she um, sadly died, uh, she was like a major script doctor, real power behind the throne in Hollywood. She was just punching up stuff left and right. She did, well, maybe I don't want to lead with Last Action Hero because that movie isn't great, but she did Sister Act, (laughs) The Wedding Singer. She also put in work on the Star Wars prequels. And, you know, she also did specific work in Hook on Tinkerbell's lines. Which brings us to Don LaFontaine voice, Tinker Hell. <laughs> that is right. We, we have come to the, the part of this episode where we talk about the major onset drama with Julia Roberts, who was playing Tinkerbell, or as she was nicknamed by the rather unkind cast and crew, Tinker Hell. The role was originally devised with uh, Meg Ryan in mind, and Winona Ryder was also considered. But of course, they ultimately went with Julia Roberts. She had an absolutely miserable time filming this movie, and many reasons, but chief among them is that days before they were due to begin filming, she called off her engagement to Kiefer Sutherland tabloids had found out that he was having an affair with an exotic dancer and she dumped him two or three days before they were supposed to tie the knot on a studio back lot. Uh, I guess the theme of the wedding was steel magnolias. That's Which, what I read. weird. But also imagine, because we had mentioned earlier that Donald Sutherland was up for the role of Hook. So imagine a world where Julia Roberts finds out that Kiefer Sutherland is cheating on her with an exotic dancer, dumps him three days before the shoot, and then has to spend God knows however long this took to shoot on set with her father-in-law. Yes. That's, playing the villain. That is a... a, a, a Special a, kind of hell. That is a universe <laughs> that I, I would, would like to visit, but not live in. Uh, so this was just a few days before she was due to start filming. And, of course, her mindset wasn't great around this time. Spielberg would later say her biggest problem was timing. Her personal life fell apart. She reported for work on that same weekend. Which, f***ing f- you, Spielberg. <laughs> Her biggest problem was timing. Kiefer Sutherland was stepping out on her with an exotic dancer. Like, uh, Spielberg, don't blame Julia Roberts for that. That, mm, sorry. No, I agree. I was, it was sad. And, and she was really, I mean, it, it, she was really high strung on the set. There was a, a story where someone on set called for Kifo, who was the name of Dustin Hoffman's stunt double. But Julia heard it as Kiefer, as in Kiefer Sutherland, and she went ballistic and she started saying, call security, how did he get on the lot? 
And then a script supervisor, a coordinator, cleared up the confusion. She started dating actor Jason Patrick, who was Kiefer's, or was his best friend, presumably ex-best friend. Apex petty move. Right. Uh, and they took a trip to Ireland right around when she was supposed to be filming Hook. And there was apparently a lot of tension on set of, you know, will she or won't she actually show up? And Spielberg apparently had to threaten to fire her if she didn't come back immediately. So... This was really a terrible experience for her. She was pretty frail and exhausted the whole time. And apparently she was even hospitalized for a really bad case of the flu. And to make matters worse, she worked almost entirely in isolation because she, you know, most of her her, uh, her scenes were in front of a green screen. So while everyone else was, you know, one big happy family and these elaborate sets and just kind of yucking it up, she was heartbroken, on, you know, alone in a green screen room. In, in, a, every... in a, like, wire truss for right? the, all the yeah. flying stuff. Like, that must have just sucked. Oh, yeah, she was heartbroken. And then every tabloid on the planet was after a story about her. And they were starting all these awful rumors about how she was, you know, on drugs, which was, you know, ridiculous. Who among us could deal with that at any age? But especially at 23. So so this is what she was dealing with. And what the cast and crew interpreted as sullenness earned her the nickname Tinker Hell. And this first became public in a, in a report in Premiere magazine while the film was still being made. And the article, which was nominally a supportive one, described her as a, quote, curious presence on set, sometimes somber, sometimes at the near edge of hysteria. Which there, but for the grace of God, go all of us. Right, exactly. I mean, that, that's my daily, uh, you could describe me every day like that. And throwing it back to Dante Basco, who played Rufio, he actually has a lot of nice things to say about Julia Roberts. Uh, he says, I remember meeting her in the trailer for the first time and being like, oh my God, as any of us would. But, <laughs> you know, she was always sweet to me. My memory is that she was an ingenue at the time and would go through the ups and downs of being an ingenue in Hollywood. It must have been a tough time. Thank you, Dante Basco, for all that you've done. Now, there's a fact about Julia Roberts on the set of Hook that usually gets kind of misconstrued. Uh, she apparently had an assistant whose only job was to clean her feet. Not a great look. Which, no, no. I mean, granted, she spent the entire movie barefoot, so it, you, you, you could almost say it was necessary. But even if it was a necessary task, it, it, it does just sound bad. You're right. And then, you know, Spielberg said that he would never work with her again. I mean, uh, he did defend her at a certain point. You know, he said at one point, Julia went through the most trying times of her life while they were shooting Hook. And it was simply bad timing for all of us that she happened to start on Hook at that low point. And then, but he did say her performance was terrific. Uh, but then in uh, later 60-minute episodes, he said, it was an unfortunate time for us to work together, but I think Julia is a really, really good actress. So he he chalks a lot of this up to timing, which, sure, it's understandable, even if it is Keith or Sutherland's fault. But when he's asked if he would work together again, he says no. Which, like, does he think that Kiefer Sutherland's going to cheat on her again during their next movie? So anyway, this hurts Julia Roberts' feelings, and um, she, in a, a later interview with Vanity Fair, says, I saw that and my eyes popped out of my head. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that this person that I knew and trusted was actually hesitating to come to my defense. It was a hard lesson to learn. It was the first time that I had felt a turncoat in my midst. Stirring condemn condemnation of Steven Spielberg from Julia Roberts, which... Thank you, Steven Spielberg. You, you hurt Julia Roberts. I will never forgive you for that. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Meanwhile, though, Spielberg got along really well with Robin Williams on the set. I don't know why I said his name like that. <laughs> that was no one in the history has ever pronounced Robin Williams' name with that inflection. But you know what? We're going to keep that. <laughs> that. That's the keeper. That's staying on. Uh, we have a, a series of, you know, the requisite Robin Williams is the best stories. Alex, take us there. What are, what are some amazing Robin Williams stories from on the set? Well, I mean, the first thing is that obviously Robin Williams is an incredibly hairy man. So he had to shave most of his upper body hair for the role of Peter, which I imagine him is like a scene from the pilot episode of Malcolm in the Middle, where he's just standing there <laughs> naked, being shaved, reading the paper every morning. But did they need, why did they need to do that? Why couldn't that have been more like one of many ways of illustrating that he had that he, grown that he up? grew up? Yeah, I don't know. It's They were there. Steven Spielberg had an imaginary line in his head where he was like, too hairy, too hairy, shave it. <laughs> um, so in between shots... Williams would do stand-up for the crew. Scriptwriter Jim V. Hart says, Robin was the soul of the set. With a hundred-plus shooting days, Robin could keep everyone laughing. The Lost Boys loved him. The crew loved him. He worked harder than any actor on the film. And, you know, everybody has good things to say about him. Rashawn Hammond, the nine-year-old who plays Thud Butt, which is... <laughs> we don't want to body shame this kid, but everyone knows why he's called Thud Butt. And he asked Robin Williams to do a Mork bit for him. And so Robin Williams went with a bit uh, about Mork hooking up with Barbara Bush. Regina Russell, who plays uh, one of the mermaids, says that Williams would always call all of the mermaids sushi or sashimi. That's cute. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And bringing it back to Dante Basco. <laughs> You're going to do a whole side podcast on just uh, Rufio anecdotes. Rufio. So Rufio actor Dante Bosco was a big fan of Dead Poets Society because he's also an aspiring poet at the time. So he would talk to Robin Williams a lot about that film. And when they rapped, Robin gave him as a rap present a limited edition copy of Leaves of Grass, which is, as everyone knows, like a huge part of Dead Poets Society. Walt Whitman figures very heavily into that film. And then Bosco says, consequently, I ended up opening a poetry venue out of my living room, which is now the largest open mic poetry venue in America. It's called the Poetry Lounge. So Robin Williams literally making dreams come true. Uh, on the flip side, he was also a big fan <laughs> of mooning. Um, apparently, uh, Robin Williams pulled a prank on the set. Spielberg was directing a huge pirate ship battle scene, and he was trying to get everyone's attention through a loudspeaker and setting everything up. And Robin was just behind him. And right when they're about to shoot and everyone's calmed down, and ready to roll, Robin uh, uh, drops trowel, I believe is the, <laughs> the technical term, and moons everyone. And uh, Spielberg lost control of the set for <laughs> several minutes while everyone's falling around laughing. Despite that, Robin Williams 
and Steven Spielberg became very, very, very close friends. Robin used to call Steven Spielberg up a year or two later when he was making Schindler's List in order to cheer him up for making this, you know, incredibly heartbreaking, somber movie and do like 10, 15 minutes of stand up on the phone, which uh, Spielberg would later say is really, you know, helping him through that tough experience. And uh, apparently after uh, Robin's death, Spielberg decided to uh, to watch Hook out of remembrance, but he couldn't finish it because he couldn't stop crying for several hours. You, you, you can't hate Spielberg now. In that yeah, moment. I was going to yeah. say that really humanizes Steven Spielberg quite a bit in my eyes. But uh, apparently, uh, though Robin and Spielberg were good friends, Robin and Dustin Hoffman were more like frenemies on the set. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, this is... To the best of our knowledge, and unless they were did something weird when they were struggling actors that we have no idea about, first time Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman were on screen together, and uh, they had an interesting relationship on the film. They would basically just start out the day by swapping dirty jokes and limericks, um, which is, you know, maybe an iffy behavior on a set where there are that many kids, but uh, Luke LaFontaine... But actors! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Luke LaFontaine, who played one of the pirates, says there was this parrot on the ship and Robin could imitate it perfectly. And invariably, he would screech just when Dustin was in the middle of a long scene. So they would just start with each other like this constantly. Um, uh, One of the extras later said that in the middle of a scene, uh, Dustin said, I've lost my motivation. Let's do it again. And then Robin does an incredible deep cut reference to that. She says, when all else fails, try acting. Which is a withering put down, even out of context. Yeah, but- so, so the whole story behind this is that uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier, um, apparently on the set of Marathon Man, uh, like 15 years earlier, uh, with Dustin Hoffman, I guess Hoffman said something similar, like, I've lost my motivation, and Sir Lawrence Olivier... The s- greatest actor on the yeah, planet. The greatest Shakespearean actor of the 20th century sniffs... When all else fails, try acting. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know why I gave him the William F. Buckley kind of voice. But um, yeah, so somehow Robin Williams knew that anecdote and probably delivered it in a pitch-perfect Olivier accent and just murdered Dustin Hoffman, and he has never survived to this day. But Hoffman would get his own back, right? He had some choice words for Robin, too. I guess there were some moments when, uh, there was a time when Robin flubbed his lines, and Dustin looked right into the camera and said, well, what can you expect from Mork? <laughs> hey Hey-o! But uh, then Robin, of course, that spurred him to greatness, and he did the next take perfectly. And then he looked into the camera and said, hey, Ishtar is on television tonight. Ishtar being <laughs> Dustin Hoffman's huge mid-80s box office bomb. So, yeah, they, they had a fun relationship. I hope all of those are captured somewhere. I hope they're like that, that's in Spielberg's vault and he just watches them <laughs> bickering like children to cheer himself up. But this segues into the category we alluded to earlier, which is Dustin Hoffman is kind of a dick. Yeah, that is right. I mean, I guess you can't really qualify this as strictly dickish behavior, but he would start every morning, apparently for health reasons, he would eat an entire bowl of hot onions and garlic every morning before going onto the set, which, you know, obviously can't have smelled that great, can't have made his breath that great. And Robin, who was going to be doing a lot of close-up scenes with him, would then also imbibe in this just so that you know canceled each other out and Spielberg not which be- is not how that works no I mean, Robin it, it, isn't that what you do like you know you go to a date in an Italian restaurant you gotta both order the garlic that's not <laughs> isn't that like a thing I guess yeah and Spielberg not to be left out did that too so they would walk onto the set and Spielberg says the crowds would just part like the Red Seas when they walked onto the set because it just apparently smelled so bad. So I don't know. You can't really call that dickish behavior, but uh, it didn't make him a particularly liked presence on the set in a physical sense. He also kind of tried to be a director a lot. Like he was always calling the shots on the set. And uh, Dante Brasco would say it was weird. It was like having a lot of different directors. But Dante also said that Hoffman was really generous with trying to help him work through lines and stuff. So he was trying to be helpful. But um, yeah, it kind of, it, it definitely made things a little tense on the set. Spielberg later said that uh, Hoffman's sort of behind the camera forays were, were helpful. And he said that Hook was the most collaborative movie that he ever made. But I don't know, collaborative sounds like a euphemism for... Yeah, being way more deferential and kind to Dustin Hoffman than he was to Julia Roberts. Uh, yeah, there are some incidents where Hoffman was really kind of a creep on the set. I mean, you know, he was a method actor, and he got into the preening hook persona. 
You mentioned William F. Buckley earlier, the conservative political commentator. Uh, Hoffman based a lot of the hook voice on Buckley. But yeah, he was just kind of a creep. He would like walk up to the mermaids and invite them to get a drink with him in his like scary, creepy hook voice. And I guess he he drank champagne and Guinness, which is a cocktail called a black velvet. It's Bono's favorite drink. Is it really? Yeah. He I, sends it he sends like cases of Guinness and Dom Perignon to people as like a rap present. I, I did not know that. It's a hell of a drink. Oh, <laughs> It'll give oh. you one mother of a hangover. <laughs> Well, I, I guess uh, he felt that Hook would drink that. So he just sort of drank that all day on the set. And uh, it made him a little aggressive and, and some have said mean-spirited. But, uh, you know. <laughs> That's of, hookish. Yeah, it was hookish. Yeah, I guess he would walk up to some of the girls and ask, did you dream about me last night? That's weird. Yeah, that, that's a little weird. <laughs> but, but maybe he was just pansexual because in a 2004 Playboy interview, Hoffman said that he had an aha moment with Bob Hoskins, who plays Mr. Smee. Those are his words, uh, the aha yes, moment. the aha moment. Uh, they decided to play their characters as, quote, a couple of old queens because they felt J.M. Barry had created them that way. So this is Dustin Hoffman talking to Playboy. Bob and I were rehearsing, and suddenly we looked at each other and realized it at the same time. We said, these guys are gay, and it was fun. Suddenly we rehearsed that way. Get over here, Smee. Give me a foot massage. Suddenly it made all the sense in the world. They were really good friends. They lived on a ship. They were devoted to each other. We're on the, the Bob Hoskins topic. He was apparently uh, a, a great favorite of the pirate extras. There was uh, a scene when Spielberg got 300 pirate extras all together for a scene with Smee. And, that, and Spielberg ultimately had to cut it from the film. And to make up for this, Hoskins bought beer for all 300 of the pirate extras. Hell yeah. And he also, when when things got tense on the set or boring, whatever, he would apparently uh, launch into uh, versions of Lionel Richie's hit, Hello, but altering the lyrics to, Hello, is it Smee you're looking for? Which low-hanging fruit, but, but, but I'll give it to Bob Hoskins. While we're on the topic of the pirate extras, um, it's interesting. <laughs> the there were strict rules. There were strict rules, but these people were bikers. There were like 150 pirates who were cast for this movie. And they were recruited at biker bars, and they basically lie around the pirate wharf set drunk. <laughs> Except for the fact that there were very strict rules for them. They had six pirate wranglers on staff. <laughs> pirate pirate wranglers. that being on your IMDb page. I know, right? Yeah. Pirate wrangler on the set of Hook. And there was a printed list of 35 rules that were circulated for the uh, pirate extras, including do not talk to the principals, do not touch the principals, do not ask for autographs, do not eat or drink the cast or crew's food, including Steven Spielberg, Robin Williams, and Dustin Hoffman's <laughs> garlic and onions breakfast. That was, uh, I just threw that in. No taking pictures. Do not touch the animals. Do not pet the monkey or you will be fired. I don't know why they, why they maybe the monkey was kind of a diva. Um... <laughs> Anyway, and so in between the scenes, the 150 surly biker pirates were just sent to another holding area, another soundstage, where they were given pretzels and water while everyone else was like eating real craft service food. That's what's funny about this. This massive overbloated budget thing. They were like, mm, where can we cut corners? Let's feed the bikers pretzels. That'll work. Uh, so... One of the extras later said the hierarchy on the set was hard to take. I personally was thinking of petting that monkey on several <laughs> occasions, which is just one of the greatest pull quotes you could ever ask for. And while we're on the topic of the film's massively bloated production and behind-the-scenes minutiae... Yes, here is a lightning round of hook production, odds and ends. Uh, my favorite, actually, is the uh, the food fight in the movie. The food was actually just colored whipped cream, and most of the kids' weaponry was, understandably, made of rubber. But, but Rufio's not. sword, Rufio's sword, Dante Basco, was real. <laughs> and he learned how to fight backwards. That still boggles my mind. Uh. Speaking of whipped cream, in an interview with EW, Julie Roberts said that the crew did whippets on her <laughs> green screen soundstage. Uh, which is basically spraying, uh, uh, more often than not, at least in, in my uh, secondhand experience with whippets, <laughs> uh, was nitrous oxide from a whipped cream canister, right? Isn't that yeah. what a whippet is? Yeah. So it, it's kind of like inhaling a bunch of laughing gas or something. It's yeah. just, so that was she how, does not name names, though. No, she does not. No, but that was how they passed time on the, uh, the certainly less exotic and active green screen set. Uh, something very strange I didn't know. 
Lady Diana's boyfriend, who died with her in, in the car crash in Paris in 1997, has an executive producer credit on Hook. Dodi Fayed um, owned a piece of the Peter Pan film rights, and he sold them to the filmmakers in return for an executive producer credit. So he, he's on the, uh, on the credits there. Yeah, so Fayed was fascinated by Hollywood, and he financed or co-financed six films between like the mid-80s and the 90s when he died, including Chariots of Fire. So he I, actually had a piece of that one as well. Wow. Yeah, he was not like a Hollywood dilettante. He actually, you know, worked in the industry for a while. That is interesting. I did not know that. There are some Easter eggs, some more fun Easter eggs in the film. Early on in the movie, when uh, when Peter's on a plane, you hear the, uh, this is your captain speaking coming over the uh, over the PA. That voice belongs to Dustin Hoffman, captain of the plane, Captain Hook. Very clever. Get it? Yep. <laughs> Uh, speaking of Captain Hook, if you look at his pirate hat, you'll note that there's triangular detailing around it, and apparently this was designed to reflect Crocodile's teeth, since as we all know, that was how Hook meets his end at the original story of Peter Pan. And also in the movie, there is an original copy, first edition copy of Peter Pan, the book, in one of the, uh, one of the early scenes. When Smee, played by Bob Hoskins, wakes up the pirates using a megaphone, he shouts, Good morning, Neverland. That was a nod to the Robin Williams movie, Good Morning, Vietnam, where he begins all of his radio broadcasts with the same uh, scream. Also, the character of Tootles references the Dead Poet Society when he shouts, Seize the Day, at the end of the movie. Uh, Robin Williams' character tells his students to carpe diem, which is Latin for Seize the Day, in Dead Poet Society. And uh, Peter Banning's kidnapped children are called Jack and Maggie, which are the nicknames for John and Margaret. The German equivalents of those names have the nicknames Hansel and Gretel. See that? Yeah. But one of the more famous things about Hook is that it was a bit of a sad trombone. Uh, (laughs) You know. Yeah, it did not do super great at the box office. Uh, It's obviously become a much beloved cult classic, but, you know, for something that had this much anticipation built around it, it didn't do super, it didn't light the world on fire. Which is weird to think now, I mean, because it's such a beloved classic. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, even even Spielberg doesn't like it. Yeah, so, I mean, as recently as 2011, he was saying, uh, I still don't like that movie. I'm hoping someday (laughs) I'll see it again and perhaps like some of it. Some um, of it. Some of it. But he did later say that there are parts of Hook I love. Um, and then he gets unnecessarily like specific about it. This is a 2011 interview with Entertainment Weekly. He says, I'm really proud of my work right up through Peter being hauled off in the parachute out the window heading for Neverland. So that's the part of Hook that Steven Spielberg <laughs> likes. Then he says, I'm less proud of the Neverland sequences because I'm uncomfortable with that highly stylized world. That today, of course... I probably would have done with live action character work inside a completely digital set. So that's interesting to me because, you know, you talk about poor Julia Roberts being strung up in a truss on a green screen, completely isolated from this magical world that everyone else was having a blast on. And Steven Spielberg is like, today, that's how I would do the whole movie. Uh, yeah. So then, you know, he also said, I didn't have any confidence in the script, which throws our beloved James V. Hart under the bus. I didn't know what I was doing and tried to paint over my insecurity with production value. And uh, yeah, about that. Thanks in part to the elaborate production design, Hook is one of the very few movies that Spielberg ever directed that went way over schedule and way over budget. It was set to run for a uh, 76-day film shoot, ran to 116 days instead. Uh, the cost started out at $48 million, but it later ballooned to $80 million, making it one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time. And that's just production budget, right? That doesn't get into marketing yeah, I, costs. I don't think, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, that is crazy. And while we are going uh, with... For the Spielberg pile-on. Yeah, while we're, while we're piling on Steven Spielberg, Hook is one of only three of Spielberg's movies to have been rated rotten by Rotten Tomatoes, along with 1941 and the Jurassic Park sequel, The Lost World. Roger Ebert, with his usual incredible gift for just murdering people, called Hook a lugubrious retread of a once-magical idea, which I'm getting printed on a business card. <laughs> The original cut of the film ran three hours. Wow. Hence the lugubrious part. Uh, Vincent Canby at the New York Times just said it was too much. And even Peter Travers panned it, who is... He likes everything. Yeah. Spielberg, it's still kind of a black mark in his career. Like, even garbage like the Crystal Skull still has its champions. 
People like the terminal, you know, but yeah, Hook still stands as that, as a critically drubbed Spielberg film. You know, my problem with Hook, why is it called Hook? It's about Peter. Or just do this. this <laughs> yeah, anyway, that is everything you didn't know about Hook. We are officially out. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed yourselves. This has been Too Much Information. We'll catch you next time. We'll see you. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.